This is M.I.P. With Masamela Mafuma. Mark Thompson. Get woke. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a very special guest here with us on Make It Plain. You all have heard me speak about him, and particularly my upbringing in a church in Nashville, Tennessee, Clark Memorial United Methodist Church. It was at that church during the Nashville sit-in movement where he taught nonviolent civil disobedience to John Lewis and Diane Nash and Bernard Lafayette, Marion Barry, many students from Fisk, Tennessee State, Meharry, and American Baptist College in the 1960 Nashville sit-in movement. He was a student at Vanderbilt University himself and was expelled for being one of the leaders of the movement. Martin Luther King Jr. recruited him to come and do work in the South after he himself had studied and taught in India and learned and understood the nonviolent beliefs and principles of Mahatma Gandhi. He brought that to the United States, brought it to Nashville, began teaching throughout the South. He was at the founding, a part of the founding of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC, and ultimately he was in Memphis in 1968 when Dr. King was martyred upon the cross. We're honored to have with us the Apostle of Nonviolence himself, the Reverend James Lawson. Reverend Lawson, welcome. It's a pleasure to see you, sir. Thank you, Mark. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> you know, at least available. Yes, and and happy to happy to see you and hear your voice. I, I want to begin this way because this is the big thing now. People are talking about Montgomery. Some white uh, citizens attacked uh, a black man four or five right. on one. Black people went to defend him and beat up some of the the white citizens. As a as a an apostle of nonviolence yourself as a teacher of nonviolence. As everyone is celebrating this and feeling some degree of jubilation, it's it's become viral. What do you, what are your thoughts about that? Beware, black people, lest the light in you is in fact darkness. If the light in you is indeed darkness, how deep is that? darkness. Beware, black people. The United States is the most violent society known to human history. Almost no one is saying that publicly. We have so many mass killings in the United States that the FBI and other agencies are not really reporting them. We have become, through conquest, through our settlements of the country, through slavery, through hanging women as witches in the 17th century, the preservation of slavery, then moving to becoming a segregated apartheid country, we have moved systematically towards being the most violent society known in history. And there is no protest to that. 
Oh, there's protest about gun killings when these happen. But that's not the problem. The problem is that we think that violence is the most powerful force on earth and is the power of creation and is the power that has made us the most powerful nation in human history. And we are simply wrong. What do you say to those in this situation where it was not doing what you and Dr. King did? It, it wasn't a, a protest. Some would say it was an act of self-defense. If, if someone were to think that way, is, is that an acceptable use of violence in that situation? No. It is, a, it is that violence in Montgomery on Saturday of black and white people rose up from the bowels of the violent society in which we live. However you want to talk about it, it is a concrete illustration of how violent is our land. And that's why I would say, beware, Black people, <laughs> on this one. Uh, a movement of nonviolent struggle began in 1953 and lasted until 1973. And it is the changes that that movement in middle century of the 20th century launched. It is that healing. It is that redeeming. It is that dismantling of the society that we, we still know is going on. And that was fundamentally the nonviolent movement of America, to use the title that the late Congressman John Lewis gave it, the nonviolent movement of America. And I put dates on it, 1953-1973. That's when the Civil Rights Bill got passed. That's when the Voting Rights Bill got passed. That's when the signs, white color, white only, no wobble. That's when all those signs came down. That's where we could, can't, could be. That's why we could be. Can, we can see today, today, black people on television, as news people, as commentators. Couldn't see that in 1960 or 1970. It is the nonviolent movement in America a major campaign of the civil rights movement that must continue brought to us and continues to favor us with. And we must not betray it. Beware. <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, sir. You exercised your belief in nonviolence as a conscientious objective to Vietnam. No, I don't have a belief in nonviolence. I'm sorry. My confidence is in the God who was in Jesus of Nazareth. My nonviolence comes from Jesus. I didn't call it that until 1947 when I began reading the biography, the autobiography of Mohandas K. Gandhi of India. So I'm not wanting 
Christianity or the churches in the United States to get off the hook. It's not Gandhi who introduced me to nonviolence. Gandhi introduced me to the language. A more important intervention in the, in the intellectual and political life of the nation than the intervention by um, um, on the equations of relativity by uh, Albert Einstein. They occurred at about the same time. General relativity equations and Gandhi introducing the term nonviolence to represent a science of how you bring about social, political, personal, and community transformation, not by the sword. Put up thy sword, Peter, Jesus said. So that intervention by Gandhi about the same time as those great equations of physics is the more important intervention of the 20th century because it warns the human race, love the violence, be elated over Saturday's event in Montgomery, Alabama, but in the word of Jesus, beware, lest the light in you be darkness. And if the light in you is darkness, how deep is that darkness? Did you, were you introduced to Gandhi before Dr. King or both of you around the same time? discovered his teachings? No, I, I was, uh, Gandhi was in black newspapers in the 40s and 50s because black publishers of newspapers thought he had something to say to the black community. There are now several books that describe that period. Uh, I entered college in 47, and the, and the first lecturer to the campus, visiting lecturer, uh, was A.J. Musty in about September of 47. And he mentioned Gandhi. He talked about Gandhi and nonviolence. So I went and found Gandhi's autobiography. That's where I then re realized um, the importance of the Gandhi intellectual and political intervention in Africa, South Africa, and in India. Your, shall I say, or let me ask, your, your first act of nonviolent civil disobedience and resistance was you being a conscientious objector in the military, correct? No, that was my first civil disobedience to U.S. law that I considered racist and unjust, therefore should not obey. I should not obey. How, and then after that, once you were freed, you went to India, I know. How did you end up in Nashville? 
because by 1952, I recognized that we were going to have a uh, movement in the black community that would challenge segregation and racism and start its de demolition and that we would use nonviolent struggle to make it happen. I knew this in my own mind, and I had agreed then that I would move south as quickly as I could to participate in it. And then 1955, the Montgomery bus boycott took place, and Martin King emerged, and that for me was one of my happiest days in life because I realized what I had heard from the eternal, from eternity, what I couldn't possibly know was happening <laughs> and that I was a part of it and would be a part of it. I'll say this uh, biblically as I heard it then. I heard clearly that there was going to be a movement of nonviolence with we black people would carry out, that there would be a leader who I did not know, but I would be as something of a Joshua or a Miriam to that leader, because I had been studying and practicing nonviolence since uh, the fourth grade. I did not call it nonviolence. I saw it more as what Jesus required. And encounters in my family with the violence of our society and the racism, and uh, a couple of a central conversation that I was in between my mother and father as they debated the efficacy of violence as over against not doing violence uh, was a part of that conversation. So. Um, uh, I prevailed on my mother's side, who uh, in an encounter with me in the fourth grade said that, uh, asked me after a violent incident that I had carried out with a white boy on the main street of Maslin in the evening after school. And my mother asked me when I, for the first time, recall reporting such an incident to her. Uh, she asked me quietly from in the kitchen, what good did that do? And reiterated who we were as a family and who I was as a child of God and how that kind of violence could not help me nor change anything. <laughs> And uh, I remember two things about it. What good did that do, Jimmy? And then, um, uh, Jimmy, there must be a better way. You were in, in Nashville. You began, you got to Nashville in the 50s. So you were teaching, you were doing nonviolent trainings. This didn't happen a few weeks before the 1960 beginning of the sit-ins. This happened before Greensboro, as a matter of fact. Greensboro was right before Nashville. You had already 
been getting the students prepared at, 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 at the schools, the universities? There's, there's an earlier step. Yes, sir. That earlier step was taken by Kelly Miller Smith and the Nashville uh, Council, uh, Christian Council, an SCLC affiliate. We agreed that we were going to have a campaign in Nashville to desegregate downtown Nashville. That's, a, that's, the, that's the way we put it. So it was the Nashville Christian Leadership Council, an affiliate with Martin Luther King Jr. that made the decision, and I was empowered by them to be the primary organizer. So the first time in my life, I was asked to organize a movement in a city in the struggle of black people to end the terror and the daily um, chains of racism in the United States. So that's the first step. And, and uh, a study in 1959, the beginning of the preparation in 1959, into 1960, a variety of kinds of experiences of preparation for nonviolent action were all a part of that plan. That is not in the books. And we're coming up with the celebration of the 1963 March uh, in oh, on Washington. And the knowledge of how that, that happened is not in the books. Be, because that earlier period you just described, that led to the March on Washington, didn't it? Yes, the March on Washington came out of the Birmingham campaign because it was in the Birmingham came, campaign in a strategy meeting, Good Friday, 1963, that there was some of that passionate, powerful talk in the strategy committee before uh, we went out to carry out the day's work. <laughs> and uh, I was presiding. It was Good Friday. And I let the good talk and the energy flow. Out of that, we called a march on Washington and asked keen to initiate a specific plan, which he did. That made it happen. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. 1963, March on Washington, of course. You were in Nashville at, at, at the beginning in 1960. Um, First Baptist Capitol Hill, Clark Memorial, the students at the four universities, the HBCUs. You were at Vanderbilt, as we said earlier. Now, how did you arrive in Memphis? What were the circumstances that brought you to Memphis? Um, well, I had meant actually to have a master's degree in theology before I moved south. Uh, but 
I shook hands with Martin Luther King February 6, 1957, and we had our first conversation together at a table, a luncheon table at Oberlin College, where he spoke that morning. And as Martin was pretty intrigued and excited by the fact I had just returned from India, where I'd worked for three three years, and uh, so urged me to come to South as fast as I could, not wait to pull my own calendar, but plan to come, and I said I would. So that's how I sped up my program to be in the South and selected Nashville as the city, and Vanderbilt has its graduate school of theology that I could best do my continuing work. When Vanderbilt expelled you, how, how did you deal with that? How did you feel about that personally as, as a student, as a scholar? Was that hurtful to you or was that at that time part of the, just the collateral damage of the struggle? My wife and I, were not hurt by it because we both recognize that my expulsion from Vanderbilt was by my doing the right thing. We had broken no laws. We had not broken the march in line with Jesus. We had done only that which was true uh, to a, a Jesus understanding of follow me. So I have to say we, you know, upset that our own plans were interrupted, but otherwise we we marched in the freedom and dignity of the moment. We knew who was wrong, and we knew that we had acted in consonant with the best that we knew in our lives of Jesus. And so now, rather, for me, it was a rather astonishing experience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, ultimately, Vanderbilt did um, award you your degree as, as you deserve years later. But so what about Memphis? When you, in, in, in what was the transition to Memphis? Well, my bishop appointed me to a church in Memphis in 19... June, maybe, May or June of 1962. So as a Methodist elder, uh, Dorothy and I moved to Memphis. I was pastor then of Centenary uh, United Methodist Church. You, Reverend Lawson, encouraged Dr. King to come to Memphis, did you? We were in steady conversation all of 1967 concerning the future of the movement. We were in face-to-face. -face. We were in phone calls. We walked around in our retreats in Penn Center and in Dorchester, we walked around talking about the 
present and the future. So it's not something like I had to promote him. He and I were pretty much in the same mind. We were both deeply committed to the, to the movement of nonviolence, deeply committed to direct action, ready to take our lickers when we had to take them, wherever. Now, he and I are volunteer people, but I consider him my Moses and my leader. So basically, I keep any critiques of Martin King to myself. Uh, however, uh, he and I were far more connected in the struggle than what people know. So my initial call to him to uh, come to a mass meeting in Memphis was met with, uh, yes, I don't know when <laughs> or how, but we'll figure it out. <laughs> that was his response. It wasn't, uh, I have to look around you. No, instantly he said, yes, we'll have to figure it out. I said, Martin, you tell me when, and we'll do it when you say do it. Now that's movement relationships. Yeah, yeah, that's that's significant. So I did. I didn't have to persuade Martin King to come to me. Martin King was already keyed, knowing that the Memphis sanitation strike in which I was a part was a part of the movement of nonviolent direct action, a strike. Dr. King, of course, foresaw his own crucifixion. Did you see that coming as well, that he would be killed? Well, I don't think the people who say that he saw his crucifixion are correct, because he and I were talking about having a moratorium come the end of the Four People's Campaign and taking time out to figure where we were, how much had been accomplished, to acknowledge we had not yet dealt with racist structures. Our work mostly was getting the cosmetic groups taken care of, but not the racist structures. So that's where he and I were. Uh, I I don't remember in 1967-68 our ever talking about how bad it was or about his assassination. So this, so that that took you by surprise as well. No, no, uh, we were two of the people who realized that through direct action, we could stop the advance of racism and segregation in our country, that we could begin the dismantling, uh, the dismantling of, ra of a racist, unfair system. No, that's what we, we knew that. And we did not argue with that. 
So when people say his mind was on his own assassination, uh, I do not know how much Martin King slept. Um, but our relationship, his and mine, uh, uh, was always deeply rooted in the struggle. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Uh, lastly, well, well, first let me share this with you. I, I spoke with Bernard Lafayette, one of your students, earlier. And we talked about the incident in Montgomery. And he said, <laughs> he said, Mark, you can't expect people to practice nonviolence who've never been taught it. It's not just something you just roll out of bed and do or wake up and do. You, it, it's, you have to know it. You have to be trained in it. Would you agree with that? And if so, what more can we do to try and educate people on the philosophy of nonviolence? I disagree with it. You do? Okay. Because most people in the United States are committed to relationships with other, others, family, and others, church, unions, in which we practice basically what I would call is nonviolence. We definitely do not try to kill each other. With the raising of our children, we want them to understand what it means to be loved and to learn to love. <laughs> we do not try to abuse. The vast majority of us in the United States practice forms of nonviolence because we want our children to advance farther than ourselves. And we use with them love and tender care. We do not use abuse and beating up. So in one sense, what many people are already doing in their own personal lives is what Gandhi and I would call nonviolence. It had never been isolated as a way of life and a way of science. That's what the issue is. It is Gandhi intervention in around the 1920s that now pulls it to the attention of at least a few people. It's the science of how you transform your life and the lives of others. It's a science of how you can transform and dismantle cruelty and injustice. Yes, sir. The, the one young man who calls you his mentor, the Rep Representative Justin Jones in the Tennessee legislature, um, a, a dear friend and protege of mine, he is, his protest, his expulsion has caused the governor to call a special session on gun violence. Mm -hmm. This month, uh, I plan to join him there. Mm -hmm. How can we, because I think this is most urgent now, how can we apply what you taught on nonviolence? How can we somehow apply that to a society that is so bereft with gun violence? How can we change the hearts and minds of those who are dismissive when it comes to gun violence using nonviolent teachings. Well, well, maybe Mark, it would be easier teaching this 
if we acknowledge that most of us do not use evil to deal with people. We use love. Most of us do not hate in dealing with human beings, not either in our intimate relationships or in our extended uh, relationships. We seek to use love. And as we seek to use love, we are seeking to practice the powers of nonviolence. Yes, sir. Most people in the United States do not try to operate out of hate. Most of us, even the racist, don't try to operate out of hatred. They know that's wrong. They know that doesn't get them anywhere. Most racist or sexist, male sexist, do not use evil in treating other people on their personal level of life. Our communities are held together by love and compassion. We practice lawful behavior based on our understanding that evil cannot be overcome by evil. Evil requires a com compassionate life and process. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Ladies and gentlemen, the Reverend James Lawson, our very special guest, guest on this very special edition of Make It Plain. God bless you, Reverend Lawson. I thank you. Thank you, Mark Townsend. Yes, sir. Be well. Thanks for getting woke and listening to Make It Plain. As always, perform an act of kindness on behalf of an elder or young person. Write a letter to a sister brother who just so happens to find her or himself incarcerated. Offer libations to the ancestors upon whose sturdy shoulders we all now stand. And above all, give thanks to the God of your understanding by whatever name you call her and him. All God asks of us is that we give each other love. Thanks for giving MIP love. And please remember to subscribe and give us a five-star rating. If all hearts and minds are clear, it has been made plain.